Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. We're recording this at like 3.51 in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and you're still sleepy. I don't I don't know why I'm so sleepy right now. Is it just, is it, I feel like this reminds me of like even now when I take a shower, I feel sleepy in the shower because I, I've always equated showers with mornings before work. Mm-hmm. And so I even whenever, if I'm having a shower in the middle of the afternoon, I'm still feeling, feeling sleepy because mm-hmm. my mind tells me you've just woken up and it's time to go to work. And I feel like watching classic Doctor Who with you for this podcast mm-hmm. elicits the same kind of reaction, makes you sleepy. Because we're usually doing it later at night. Exactly. But it's not, it's Victoria. Oh yeah, happy Victoria Day. I haven't even said that to you yet today. That's, well, happy Victoria Day to you as well. Okay. Yeah. It's, well, it's just a holiday, and usually we try to record at least one episode on a holiday. At least one episode, which we've done. We've uh, watched Inferno, episode one. Episode one. Episode one of Inferno, which is uh, notable. Well, today's notable. A, it's Victoria Day. Uh, B, sadly, 23 years ago today, John Pertwee died. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's sad. I know. I remember that. I remember when uh, I opened up the newspaper, because it made the newspaper... I mean, a small little section of it, mm-hmm. uh, understandably, but in, in, in Calgary where I was going to school, and I was very sad. I still have a clipping of that newspaper. Wow. TV's Doctor Who dies or something like that. John Pertwee died in the U.S. on vacation. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yikes. So it's fitting that we watch an episode, mm-hmm. um, which is one of his favorite stories, I believe, which is Inferno, which you've seen before mm-hmm. for the purposes of a podcast. No? What was it for? It was to watch because I'm a fan of Doctor Who. What? You don't just watch Doctor Who for fun. Uh, it was It was actually shortly after Nicholas Courtney died. That's right. And I can't remember if I had this on VHS and just hadn't got around to watching it and finally decided to watch it then. I think that's what happened. I think I had like the big VHS set. Mm-hmm. Um or I might have gotten it on Netflix, but I'm pretty sure this is one that I had on VHS and had like, you know, I bought it at Suncoast Video um, as I did a bunch of things and then like it just kind of sat around and I didn't watch it right away. Mm-hmm. And then eventually uh, when Nicholas Courtney died, I was very sad. I was like, okay, well, I need to, to watch something with Nicholas Courtney. In. And uh-huh. this was this is the thing that I picked because it was one of the ones that I had. And it was ones that you hadn't seen up until that point? Correct. Yeah. But you had it. You've owned it and you never watched it. Yeah, I don't know how long I had owned it at that uh, point. Maybe just a f- couple of years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know that this is also one of my favorite Doctor Who stories? Is that does that impact your um, thought of uh, this going in? Well, I I knew you liked it a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm not. I don't think it had any impact on on my uh, thoughts about it. Okay. I just, you know, just because I know you were slightly worried about going into Ambassadors of Death because, you know, the high esteem that I gave it. Well, that was because I hadn't seen it before, so I hadn't uh, had a chance to make my own, like, determination mm-hmm. about it, whereas I'd seen Inferno before and I, I liked it just fine, yeah. so. I want to point out, speaking of Ambassadors of Death, that actually you... Um, you were relatively okay with it on this podcast, but mm-hmm. then talking it over with Liz and Deb on Verity mm-hmm. about it actually made you enjoy that story more. Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's fun to talk about things episode by episode or, you know, a few episodes at a time. But I think sometimes I need a little bit more time after the end of the story to sort of let everything gel in my head to really kind of come to grips with it, mm-hmm. especially for one that's sort of as, as, as thinky as ambassadors of death is Uh so yeah so you know the the next day uh sitting down and recording and talking about it with deb and liz like i just sort of reassessed some things and yeah i think i came out of that podcast recording uh liking it even more than i did 
like significantly more than I did when we recorded for this. So if you uh, haven't listened to Verity and you're interested to hear how my opinions changed, go back and listen to Verity. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to see. I don't know when you're uh, talking about this on, on Verity, mm-hmm. but instead of having to like cram seven episodes of Doctor Who into yeah. a week, we're, we're starting now. So, but at least it's a story you've already seen before. But, but yeah, episode one opens up in some drilling project with uh, Doctor Who driving in Bessie and singing opera music, which you were just not a fan of. Well, I'm not. I'm not an opera fan, really. No. And I just like nine times out of ten, I don't like it when uh, people on TV shows sing. Like it just. I don't know. They have to. They have to be really, really, really good, and it has to really fit whatever's happening for it to just not kind of great on me. <laughs> it's not like he has a bad voice or anything. Like you know, he carried a tune just fine. Whatever. Uh, it just. It just kind of bugs me. In fact, I've been watching uh, season one of Lucifer recently, and he in one of the episodes fairly early in the uh, in the season, he mm-hmm. starts singing, and I like like my shoulders started creeping up towards my ears, and I was like, oh god, no! And then he starts singing, and I was like, oh. This is actually really right. good. Like it happens so rarely that I enjoy something like that mm-hmm. that it took me quite by surprise on that show. So so here it was back to the usual. Nope. Ooh, I just please please stop singing, please. See, I, I, he wasn't singing to anyone in particular. I I feel um, bad for people for characters on TV shows who are sitting there watching someone sing to them. Because <laughs> yeah. I always think, oh God, what do I do? Do I just sit here? Do I react somehow? Do I check my phone? What's, what is the decorum when people get their guitar out and stand five feet from you and start playing a song to you and you go, what, ah, that deer in headlights look. So I always feel some sort of tangential anxiety on their yeah. behalf. Yeah, there's, but at least there was none of that because no. he was just, he was driving along singing. And I mean, who of us has not driven along and just been singing at yeah. the top of our lungs? Although like he has an open air car, so it's a little bit different, but... Mm-hmm. And he actually works it into Zale when he waves to the uh, sentry going by. That is true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, and then there's a, a crazy um, guy with touching green goo and then he nails someone and everything. And never touch the goo. Just never, never touch the goo. That starts the whole thing. Mm-hmm. The repairman going, hey, goo, let's touch it. And he immediately gets burned and stuff. Yep. You know. Yeah. That's that's just not wise. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Let's, oh, I want to point out Olaf Pooley, Olaf Pooley, who plays Professor Stallman in this. Uh, we've seen him recently in an episode of the Sandbaggers. He was in the first one. Ah, like he seemed really familiar to me and I knew I've seen him in other things, Uh but I was just like, why does he seem so familiar to me? So that must be it. Yeah. I played the like Norwegian ambassador or something of, uh, in episode one. Oh yeah. yeah, Okay. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Uh, more notably though. Olaf Pooley uh, died, I think, just a year or two ago at the age of 102. That's why his name sounded familiar, because I remember you mentioning him yeah. at that time. He was still painting, making a painting a week. Uh, and, and they had a story about on his 100th birthday, they had a big display of all the artwork he was he was doing. He was living in Los Angeles like, for the past 10 odd years or something like that. Yeah, still painting into his second century on this planet <laughs> uh, until he died at 102. So what a, what a chap. Good on him. Yeah. Man, that's impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, I always found it interesting that um, that Derek Newark, um, who played Zaw in the very first story, uh, makes his return here playing um, Derek Sutton, mm-hmm. 
Um, interestingly, he plays cavemen in both stories because he's an <laughs> HR nightmare uh, hitting on Petra immediately upon meeting him. He's so icky. Like... And he's, I, I don't think he's supposed to be icky. I think he's just supposed to be like a, Charming. you know. Yeah. Ugh. And it's just, it does, does not play well now. And like, there's a part of me that wants to, I don't want to say root for him exactly, but like he, he knows what he's talking about in his, the type of oil drilling that he has yeah. done. Like he is an expert in his field and yeah, he's not super familiar with exactly what they're doing here, but he understands the risks. Mm-hmm. But the way that he hits on her in the first place. Yeah super super <laughs> icky and like not just icky but rude just flat out mm-hmm. rude um just not treating her like a human being at all it's it's awful but then then later when he's he's pointing out you know you shouldn't go in there it's 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 risky all that kind of stuff like she knows this this huh. is her freaking job she's the one who's here she's like helped plan this whole thing so um yeah she knows what those risks are so shut up <laughs> Like I just, I just wanted to sock him one, right? Like kiss her. Yeah, mm-hmm. understood. I would too. He he is very much the impulsive everyman in this operation, um, for good or for ill. Yep. Like I, you know, I I respect his knowledge, but I don't, I don't respect the way that he tosses it around specifically to Petra because mm-hmm. you don't see him lecturing Stallman. Mm-hmm. You know. No. Mm-mm. Just, just the lady. The I was gonna say the ladies, but we all know there's only one. It's 1970s Doctor Who. Well, we have Liz. That's true. Liz is there, uh, who's as as competent as ever. I like how we don't. She doesn't even get an introduction scene. You know, the Doctor sort of like pulls up using his fancy dancy garage door opener. Obviously, the Stanley garage door opener had not come into uh, the the market yet because the unit squatty is uh, amazed by it. Doctor sort of pulls up the car, gets out, and then like there's Liz. Like the camera just sort of pans over, and Liz is already there working and stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought I, I I enjoyed that subtle introduction of her. Yeah, that was nice. And how the doctors, you know, she's like, "What did you get from the computer?" And he's like, "Oh, just you know, telling us what we already knew." And she's like, "Well, I'll run the numbers again just mm-hmm. to just to check." And it's just you know very. You know, two people working together, camaraderie, and yeah, just like I'm, I'm trying to think of any other. Well, the Fifth Doctor and Nissa like sort of get along on this, yeah. this that same level, and that's that's one of my favorite Doctor companion relationships of all time. And this is very very similar in terms of the way that they relate to each other. Except you don't have whiny Tegan or whiny anybody else, yeah. like everybody else, uh, wandering around and you know getting in the way. So this is this is quite delightful. I, I could tell that you're going to look forward to the episode one of Arc of Infinity and nothing else <laughs> when the Peter Davison era comes around because it's just the Doctor and Nissa for that tiny bit i look forward to it greatly yeah uh this, also just uh, i just find it, it just because i'm me uh that derek newark was in the first story and this story uh the first story of course is the first story that featured the tardis console this is the last story to feature the original tardis console it's also the last story to feature um stock music and indeed not music that was written specifically for the show it's all stock music some of the stuff is done by in fact uh, delia arbisher uh, stock tracks, yeah, some really cool stuff. Blue veils on something. Sa- I can't remember the name of it, but um, some some neat couple of tracks that uh, that are are heavy portions are used in in all these episodes. Very very spooky and ethereal stuff. Wow, I didn't really notice the music too much. The well, a- as we'll see as the stories go along, this might be my favorite use of sound in a Doctor Who episode. 
just because you know the constant sound of the drilling you know it's sort of like you don't really need music going on top of that there's just always this sort of this din that's happening yeah i did notice that uh in the beginning when you've got um Benton hanging pictures and stuff in in the Briggs new temporary office and every time somebody comes in through that big thick metal door like when the door is open you hear that sound so much louder and then the door closes and it and it dims down it really it sort of punctuates that to kind of point out you might not have noticed in the previous scene just how loud this drilling noise mm-hmm. is but we're going to we're going to make that clear to you that this is this is a really big operation that is just you know constant and ever present yeah and i don't i believe the sound effects i know they certainly were in claws of axos because there's raw studio footage from the shooting of episode one of that mm-hmm. where you can actually hear the sound effects being played in live during recording and i think i i'm pretty sure that they were doing the same thing with uh with this as well so like those like i wonder that that affects your performance because like you know you're mm-hmm. you don't have to pretend you don't have to yell over uh, nothing, yep. but pretend that there's a lo- large sound there, but it's actually running there. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, they are, you know, talking pretty loudly to each mm-hmm. other when they're in the, the drilling rooms and stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, I always like that. Um, anything else stuck out for you from for this episode one? Um, um, I like Liz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just the thing I keep thinking of. Uh-huh. Um, and the, oh, the, speaking of the TARDIS console, like I noticed it in uh, one of the previous stories, but you can really, really tell here is how green it is. Right. So Cause, green. Yeah. Cause they painted it green because black and day, white days, if it was white, it would just sort of like gleam shine. Uh-huh. Yeah. I know. And they, you know, when it went to color, they didn't change it to white. They just left mm-hmm. it green, which just seems like a very strange thing. Yeah. It was, it was falling to bits at this point. Hence the new one next mm. year. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, it's just like, it looks so sad just sort of sitting out in the middle of this weird shed with a, with a bunch of bookshelves and stuff. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how he gets, uh, the doctor gets the console out of, I mean, obviously he has enough power to either, you know, materialize the console outside of the actual TARDIS or did he actually like flip, like, you know, we've try to try moving a couch through an apartment door that's tough enough i can't imagine flipping a tardis console and rolling it out i don't think it would clear the uh, the mm. police box doors but who knows maybe he had enough power to dimensionally adjust the doors of the tardis to be big enough to slide it out on like a you know furniture mover or something like that maybe or maybe there's just like it's one of the features that you can detach the console mm. to work on it perhaps and like it shrinks down to like palm size, so you can carry it out, and then it whoop gets back bigger again. Kind of like it did with um, the uh, time meddler, the meddling monk in the time meddler, when they sort of pull out the yep. dimensional circuit, and maybe that's how he did it. Yeah, that something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure. Big finish has probably covered it. Um, this is also directed by Douglas Camfield. Parts of it, actually, this is the this. I think he's out. He's in for the first two episodes and did all the filming, but then he collapsed during rehearsals of episode three, I believe. Yes, um, with the the heart condition that would sadly later kill him, and uh, and so he had to give up directing the rest of the story. But Barry Letts directs all the rest of the episodes, even though it's credited to Douglas Camfield, basically following his. Uh, his, his lead and stuff. but And Barry Letts being a, a top-notch fellow said, you know what, I actually think <laughs> Douglas Canfield's direction is better than mine in this. But I, I think it's quite seamless. Um, 
for the last five episodes of the story. You don't necessarily tell that, oh, it's an entirely different director. So I think Barry List did a good job of matching the style mm -hmm. um, of Douglas Camfield, who is a very distinctive director, um, and instead of like sort of like going his own way. Good team player was producer Barry Letts. There were a couple of uh, like quick cuts that made me laugh, like the... Um I mentioned uh, Benton hammering in yeah. the nail and how that was a cut from what what had happened right before that that made me laugh. That, the uh the 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 murder, yeah, of Slocum, yeah. <laughs> yep, so like he's taking swinging his hand back to chop somebody down and then bam, you see the, the hammer hitting a nail into a wall. Yeah, I I th ooh, did that happen in a previously directed Camfield story or one to come? It might have been in Terror of the Zygons that I'm thinking of. Uh, or maybe Seeds of Doom, but I, it has happened before. It's a, it's a thing that Douglas Canfield did, and I can't remember which which story it was in there, but I remember watching, like, oh, that's just like an inferno. <laughs> exactly the same. Someone's hammering something. So I thought that was kind of clever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was neat. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. It's written by, also, Don Houghton, who is was a friend of Terrence Dix. He later writes another story, uh, The Mind of Evil, in, in, in the next season. But he is also notable as being the only person not named P.J. Hammond to write a story for Sapphire and Steel. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We need to get back to that one of these days. We really do. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not doing a podcast about that one, though, just so you know. Okay, that's fair. Okay, yeah, because we're already four episodes in. There's only 31 to go. But, yeah, we watch it with our friend Annette. And, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that'd be fun to get back to. Yep. Yeah. There's just not enough time to watch TV shows. There isn't, and there's only time enough today to watch this one episode, perhaps. Maybe more? No, you're pretty sleepy. I'm sleepy, and I have cramps, so like, it's just, <laughs> nothing's really fun right now. Yeah, sorry. Well, I hope you had fun watching the episode. I, I, I did in, enjoy it. I, I look forward to feeling better, perhaps, for the next the next one that we watch. I hope you had fun talking about it with me. Yes, dear. <laughs> Somebody's fishing. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, goodbye. 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 <laughs>